racist violence, discursive racist violence, is telling people who experience racism that they don't know what racism is. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. I am particularly buzzing, and T, I think you are as well, I am, I am, I am. Right, so this scholar is one of the first (laughs) scholars, right, of race that I read as a late undergraduate, early master's student that I actually understood. Like, (laughs) the way, how excited I am for this episode, you guys just don't, don't, you're not ready. Without further ado, we are joined by Alana Lentin. Hello, Alana. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited. I don't know if you know, you probably know this because I always say it on Twitter, but like every time I go for a walk, I always listen to the latest episode. So I'm a huge fan. I'm an absolutely enormous <laughs> fan. And I also want to say, because I'm here in Australia, that I'm uh, sitting on unceded Gadigal land and just remind that we're on land that was stolen from the Gadigal people and that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Amazing. My God, starts off so powerful. We're not ready for this. <laughs> Lana, we have been reading your book, Why Race Still Matters. Like, this is, this book, like, T, what were you just saying about it? When I first read the book, the first thing I felt was, it upset me a bit, man. It's emotional. Mm-hmm. And, like, it struck me because how in the sense of how monumental the task is in explaining what this issue is, that it's kind of, especially in the last century, if you're looking at, and on a superficial level, it seems to have played the 20th century. Some of the greatest atrocities in the 20th century have been racial, right? And, well, I think most of them, especially uh, post-World War II, around sitting around like ethnic kind of stuff in Zariogo and Bosnia and stuff like that. So race has played a large part in the 20th century discourse. So you're thinking, well, how are we going to resolve this? That When I read mm. your book, I'm thinking, oh, but it's so big. You know? It's so, so big. And I guess before we get into the nitty gritties, so you are in Australia right now. Mm-hmm. You've been there eight years, Alana. Eight, is that right? almost, yeah. Eight, eight in June. So I guess it would be really good, yeah, to tell the listeners, and if you don't know who Lana is, get to know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you should, you should. A little bit about your journey to where you are now, like what sort of happened for you over the past, yeah, 10 to 20 years, basically. It'd be really good to get that sort of update and then how you end up writing this book. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, I mean, I guess moving to Australia was um, a bit of a strange decision. I've been working in the UK at the University of Sussex for six years. And I guess it was kind of personal reasons that led my family of three to kind of want to to try something new. And, you know, there's an interesting story about this, which relates to the book. When I, you know, you finish the first draft and then it gets sent off to readers and they comment. And one of the readers said, I had written something in the introduction to the book. The the introduction that's now in the book is completely different to the introduction that I first wrote. And I'd written something in the introduction to the book about what I discovered when I moved to Australia in terms of what it means to live in in a country that's still colonized. So even if, you know, when you live in the UK, you live, I've lived in France as well, Italy also, these were all colonial powers. 
And obviously, we can't discount the ongoing coloniality and the relationship to people who've migrated from former colonies, etc. But still, it's different to actually living in a society that's that's continually colonized. And the reviewer, it was so interesting because he or she wrote in their review that, you know, I was really shocked and surprised that Alana didn't know anything about Australian settler colonialism. And I was like, in my response to the editor, I was like, well, it's not that I didn't know about this intellectually, but nothing really prepares you for the visceral feeling of participating in the colonization of another people's land. And you don't understand that until you move there. So plenty of people, as we were discussing in the pre-chat, told me, you know, Australia is this crazy racist country. I particularly found it interesting that white British people were telling me this. And I was like, you do understand that it's racist because of you people. You know, (laughs) Aboriginal people were living there for 60,000 years before you guys turned up and, you know, created a problem with race through your colonization. And so, yeah, intellectually, you know, it's a racist country and it's a settler colony, but nothing prepares you for what it's like. Uh, to actually live here. Having said that, I think there are things that I today understand about how race works that I simply didn't understand before moving here. So it's been, I mean, I hesitate to say it's been an interesting experience because that makes it look like I've just put the society under the microscope and, you know, to hell with the actually <laughs> the actual living people, you know, which is, makes me feel awful. But on the other hand, there are certain things that have my eyes have been opened up to, and that's mainly been through um, engagement with Aboriginal scholarship and activism. So, yeah, so before that, I was, as I said, I was living in the UK. But I think the other the other piece that's important for understanding the kind of work that I do is that I've lived in several other European countries. Um, and so I'm kind of, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I'm able, also because I speak, read, obviously, in French and Italian. So I'm, I'm able to, to read those texts and understand how race is thought about or not thought about, as the case may be, in those other countries and think about it in the round so that when people make very often we suffer in race scholarship by an overdominance of a North American lens on how race is interpreted. Mm-hmm. And that's because people aren't multilingual, right? And so I guess I have the benefit of having that ability. And so I can try to think about how race works as really as a global discourse in that sense. That's a lot. So I think, so do you think your kind of transnational kind of background and moving around has helped you develop your race critical mm. capacities? Yeah. to understand how it all works, how it all kind of puts together. So given that most people don't have the, like you said, don't have that kind of multilingual ability, how do we mm. kind of develop that kind of race literacy to kind of start looking at this edifice and actually kind of trying to think how we're going to move forward? Mm. I think, you know, more and more people are doing really interesting work on race in countries where it hasn't traditionally been looked at. So there are authors who are looking at race in the Italian context, even in the Eastern European context, where really it's been completely ignored. I mean, the issue of Roma people, which is so critical to how European racism has been formed, is completely off the agenda of most scholarship. So it's really important to look at that. And I, you know, I criticize myself. I don't think I do enough of that. I would like to to look at that more. Um, but I always try to mention anti-Roma racism as part of how we need to, to theorize and think about race. And so I think we just need to be attentive to literatures that don't often get a look in because of the dominance of North American and the English language publishing. And there's quite a lot of stuff that's been translated or scholars from North America and the UK and so on who've gone to other countries and worked on those countries as well. And just to have a better understanding, Latin America is a massive locus for you know, Brazil is such mm-hmm. an important case study for looking at race, for example. Brazil probably gets more attention than other places. I think you had somebody on your podcast who'd looked at race in Latin America. I think she was interviewed by somebody else in your yeah, yeah. 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 That stuff is so important. And 
I guess sort of rolling it back, Alana, I think it would be really good because we were focusing on in the book a couple of chapters, even though we've ended up reading most of it because it's so (laughs) good. Such a page turner. I feel like it's such a sort of like not a manifesto. Do you do you know what I mean, T? Like it's kind of like a call to arms. I you say at the end, I've asked more questions than I've answered, but I think that is really important. Because I feel like so much of the time we, we do become, and I'm, I can do this as well, entrenched in our views. And actually, mm. one of the reasons why I love this book so much is because it really made me think harder and work harder at what my position is. What is anti-racism mm. to me? Talking about the chapter, making it about race. Mm. To start off with, I love this chapter, but to start off with, how would you define, Alana, race? So... I define race as a technology of power for the management of human difference. Uh, That's my basic definition. So the last piece of that is that the aim of all of that is the maintenance of white supremacy. So I don't think about race in purely in the 19th century terms that locates race in racial science and biology. And I think this is pretty well established in, in, you know, race critical and critical race theory and history of race, there's an understanding mm-hmm. that the biological is only one piece or one period in the construction of, of race as an idea and a form of rule. However, and this is part of what I do in the book, is to try to show how a dominant explanation of what race is comes from a pinning of that to a particular 19th century reading of race as racial science, eugenics, social Darwinism, which is an incredibly important and also increasingly dominant, as we can see in the coronavirus situation, yeah, uh, part and yeah. not to be discounted, but that we can't understand why that becomes dominant without or understanding what preceded it, which is the setting in motion of the, basically the racial rule that dominated colonial expansion and created the possibilities for philosophers, anthropologists, and geneticists to then formulate theories about how humans differed according to some kind of genetic difference. But if we start there, we miss a whole part of the picture. And why that's important is that today we'll say, oh, but we all know that that's nonsense. We all know that we're, you know, to take the liberal anti-racist slogan, we're all one race, the human race. When I cut myself, the blood that flows out is the same as the next, all that kind of stuff, right? And so it allows us to discount race as still being so important for how people, you know, people's life chances, how they experience life, simple things like life expectancy, educational opportunities, employment opportunities. So we can discount that because, oh, we all know that that's rubbish and nonsense. And that's why we can't start. We have we can't start there. We have to start much earlier in order to understand how race forms and also how race changes and adapts to a whole host of circumstances is really malleable and flexible as a discourse um, and as a way of thinking and is often quite good at hiding itself in plain sight so that indeed, you know, people say, well, why are you making this about race? Which is why I gave that name to the chapter. You're being unhelpful by making it about race. Kind of linked to that from what you kind of link in, in your book as well, especially is how race and racism are linked and the interplay between the two. And mm. I think that's quite interesting. And I didn't realize that until like when you mentioned like racism was a kind of first coined in the 19th century, the Europeans dealing with the Jews, but how they still interlinked. And how would you define racism then? 
Okay, so this is work that I owe to to that of Barner Hesse, who, if you don't know his work, uh, you should get familiar with. Um, mm. Barner Hesse now works at Northwestern University in the United States, but he's Black British academic. He's written a number of articles in which he explains the Eurocentric origins of racism as a term. And what I've tried to do is build upon that in the book, also drawing on the work of a French historian called Renaud Paligot, who looks at how certain physical anthropologists, as they were called in France in the early 20th century, were very involved in anti-racism, so challenging racism, but at the same time were carrying out studies on black people in, in the colonies and how these two things completely sat comfortably with each other. And the reason that argued that this is the case, building on Hesse's work, is that racism is taken out of context and attached to what people were worried about at the time. So we're talking about the very late 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century, which was the rise of intra-European racism. Okay, so this idea that, okay, race, no, nobody was disputing that race existed, right? So everybody was a racial, you know, a race thinker in those days, but they started to say it's inconceivable that there are racial or genetic differences between groups of European people. So until this point, people were saying, well, the Slavs are a different race and the Jews are a different race, etc. And they were saying, no, we need to think about Europe as this common humanity, right, or this common racial group. Um, and the Africans and the Asians and the you know, the Indians, the South Asians and so on, they are different races, but Europe as a whole is one race. So we can't countenance this intra-European racism that we were seeing, that they were seeing at the time rising, particularly in the form of the rise of fascism that targeted Jewish people and also Roma people, although they weren't discussed at all under these terms. There was still like racial experimentation going on on Roma people. So this never even comes into play, right? It doesn't even get discussed. And so you could have somebody, these French physical anthropologists, they created a journal called Race and Racism in order to sort of target and, and challenge this rising intra-European fascism, while at the same time literally doing cranial measurements on <laughs> black people's skulls, you know, in order to prove that they were, I think the quote there in the book is something like, on average, an IQ that was 20% lower than. So my point in all of this is that then what happens is that we individuate racism as this really bad thing that we all know is morally wrong, okay? And we operate from that from that starting point. So racism is this bad thing that's you know, nobody would countenance. We simply don't do it anymore, particularly after the end of the Second World War. We've all understood that this could lead to genocide, et cetera, et cetera, right? But we don't think about where these ideas came from and what is allowed to continue under the cover of this global understanding that racism is this wrong, right? So this is why we have people objecting so strongly to being called a racist, because it's perceived as name calling. It's not descriptive of a form of behavior or prejudicial attitude or, you know, a policy or a practice. It's something like me calling you a XXX, right? Like a, a bad word. <laughs> and, and, and so that's really convenient, isn't it? Because it allows racial rule to continue under the cover of like, it's not me. That was so, so synthesised, Alana. That was brilliant. And I guess it brings us on to one of your really, really, I feel like important arguments in the book about how that process of name calling is operationalised by liberals, by the middle class, 
and thinking about Trump and Brexit and mm. how thinking about like legitimate concerns about immigration. Like if you mm. don't let people talk about or be if you don't let people talk about their racism, then you're shutting down debate or that mm. you're not you're not recognising an authentic experience. I feel like for the past two years and whatever, me and mm. T have been trying to work out together how we talk to our peers, even family members, about how this is operationalised within our everyday lives, whether it's in the Guardian newspaper, whether mm. it's at the dinner table with a family member, how the move or the imagining of groups as needing to have space mm. to be racist. It's hard. It's, hard. it's a tricky one. It's a so tricky hard. one to talk about. It's so hard because it's, I feel like it's the big question, it's the big mm. question right now that we need to yeah. overcome urgently. I think the point is, okay, so because we're starting from this baseline in which racism, calling somebody racist is name calling. I mean, Sarah Ahmed already spoke about this, wrote about this many years ago. Um, and so I think she writes somewhere that, you know, calling somebody the racist becomes the bigger problem than the racism itself, right? So we only understand racism as this moral wrong. And it has to be, I think, in the book I also describe, or maybe it's it's in an article that I wrote, philosopher of race talking about racism has to include a viciousness. It has to be about um being purposefully and intentionally obnoxious to somebody else. And that could be on many levels. I mean, even including physical violence and even murder, nobody's excluding that. But it has to be intentional and it has to be vicious and it has to be about a belief that I have that's strongly ingrained in me as an individual, right? And that leads to this ability to say, okay, you're a racist, you're not a racist. This guy's a racist, she's not a racist, right? And this, to me, is a completely counterproductive way of approaching racism because, again, it treats it as something that's completely separate to racial rule. In fact, it doesn't even talk about racial rule at all. So it doesn't talk about the conditions out of which it's possible even to talk about, you know, having legitimate concerns about migration or needing to have an open and honest debate about the hijab, for example. So we don't even talk about those conditions. It's simply a matter of my own opinion. And then if you attach that to the whole freedom of speech angle, which is something that, you know, a forthcoming book by my friend and colleague Gavin Titley is dealing with in his, it's a book that's coming out in a couple of months on, on is free speech racist, right? But all of that thing is like, well, it's my right to talk about these things and I'm only discussing it. And why are you, why are you so traumatized by something that's only language? It's only, it's only debate and discourse, right? So, all of that leads to this, to something that I think has been op openly accepted in the media today, that merely airing concerns, as it's put, is not racist. So that's what I theorize in chapter two of the book, is this idea that mm -hmm. something is not racist. And to have legitimate concerns is never racist, because I repeat, to be racist, I have to have this intentional hatred and viciousness towards another person. And very often, as you're saying, Often it's somebody in your family who might love you very much, right? So they're not intentionally vicious towards you. In fact, they love you, but they still have legitimate concerns um, about people like you or other people who are also racialized. So we all know about people who have come from racialized backgrounds themselves. Uh, I'm thinking about Jewish people in my own instance who now have horribly racist views about migrants or refugees or Muslim people or black people, etc. It's trying to frame it in a way, trying to get people to understand the subtleties of, of race. Mm. And so, like you said, like the caricature is so, so for someone to be racist, they have to be intentionally, overtly mm. 
racist mm. and try to explain to someone like the fr- your frames of reference that you're using are tropes or stereotypes that have a long history and a standing of of dividing people of categorizing people mm. so for example one that I used to come across was um, I, I had plenty of girlfriends. I'm I, I'm, a, I'm an amazing lover, even though these people <laughs> don't even know who I am, right? So this will be repeated on mass. And and what people don't realize is, on the most superficial level, men play into it because their egos that it plays into, mm. right? So something something that's seen as a good thing. But what mm. I'm trying to say to people is like, listen, do you both sides? You're both kind of playing into stereotypes, and you're perpetuating something that's so innocuous, so mm. deadly, but. Both of you have made it into something that's, well, one, it's about <laughs> misogynizing women, but the other thing is like, now you've kind of made it about something completely different. And there's, mm. there's, there's so many things going on there, and it's, it almost seems like a very simple statement, like, oh, you get loads of girls. I'm thinking like, it operates at all those levels. What I try to explain, I think, I hope I manage to do this, is that race frames all of these types of interactions and ways of thinking. But, and this is, I guess, the part that I focused on more, is that there's been a huge amount of investment, political investment from, from the higher echelons of society. I'm not talking about this as a conspiracy, but if you think about the extent of white supremacism over 500 years, the fact that if you took away slavery from the US, the US would have no economic power today. Its entire economic power is based on two things, the theft of land and the theft of labor. Okay, mm-hmm. so things like that, the extent of white supremacy and what it's reaped for white people globally and in terms of the global world order is so extreme and so severe that there's a huge amount of investment in not talking about it and reducing racism into this thing that can be dealt with through having better attitudes or simply, you know, I don't know, I don't even know what solutions they have, like, you know, better education or all of these kinds of liberal things that people suggest. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm the first to say that education is so important, right? But it's definitely not enough. Interracial unions. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. So these beautiful mixed children, mixed, yeah. you know, so I'm using inverted commas there, but this horrible racial language that's used uh, without us even thinking about it, we'd use the language of racial, you know, genetics, really, a racial science to talk about children, right? Mm-hmm. Without even thinking about it, because it's so par for the course. Uh, it's so ingrained. And, and, you know, we don't, you don't need me to tell you any of this. Stuart Hall and so many other great writers have written about this. But I think the part that I want to focus on and mm-hmm. what I've tried to, to say is that this, this investment in, in not speaking about race, while at the same time admonishing anybody who does speak about it as the problem, making it about race, forcing us to see a situation that is neutral as racist, is a huge part of how racism is enacted. I call it a form of racist violence. Discursive racist violence is telling people who experience racism that they don't know what racism is and that only I, objective white scholar, pundit, blah, whatever, knows what racism is. So that's why you have somebody like I mentioned in the book, David Goodhart. He talks about the normal definition of racism. And he says the normal definition of racism is having an irrational hatred for a group of people. And, you know, I then 
found an article by David Goldberg from the early 90s, race critical scholar David Goldberg, who, who says, you know, when you think about it, race is completely rational, right? Because particularly in the context he's writing about the context of US slavery, but it was obviously rational for white people to engage racist behavior towards black people, because that's the way they were going to be able to have a better life, particularly poor whites. You know, this is, relates to Du Bois's idea of the psychological wages of whiteness. How were you ever going to get a standing in in a society, in a deeply class society, well, it was by distinguishing yourself from black people who are always going to be lower down the pecking order to you. And we've seen this in subsequent, you know, eras of migration that people, when they're able to get a little bit of power, what they do is then participate in, I'm not saying everybody does this, but there's, a, there's an encouragement to participate in what the Australian cultural, uh, cultural studies scholar John Stratton calls honorary whiteness. But what he says is that that honorary whiteness can be very easily taken away. So beware of what you're, what you're hankering after. And we've seen that in the mm -hmm. case of Chinese people in relation to the coronavirus. Jewish people time and again have to be reminded about how they're only one step away from being lumped in with everybody else, you know? That idea of participation is quite, uh, quite powerful. I think that's what prevents people sometimes from dealing with this critically because the idea is sometimes when people realize that they're part of a system and they think, well, how can I be? Because like, like if we go back earlier, the kind of the narrative is that racism is a moral distinction mm. and you see you participate in, you're part of this problem. And yeah. I guess the kind of people talk about it in terms of capitalism. So they try to kind of say, I'm not a bad capitalist. Like these mm. are those money makers, but I'm, I'm participating in that system. One of the things that I think this goes on to speak to is such a poignant sentence in chapter three, which I've literally just cited in my thesis, was how race, <laughs> how race meets whiteness. Mm. And like, we were talking about this in our pre-chat, like when we talk about whiteness, how uncomfortable that makes people and, and, and what you do really well in the book is you, you talk about how that is because of how race is constructed. And what you've said here is that they don't want to talk about whiteness because there is an investment you capitalise off that. So you can't mm. talk about it because you're going to get found out. Yeah, And I think that's so powerful. And I feel like one of the reasons why the book has pushed me so much is because you talk about different political movements like Black Lives Matter, political blackness as well, and how it, it's like that there's sort of two ends of the subjugation where you're where you're fighting the people that are saying you're doing identity politics mm. and then you're fighting those on the left that are saying to you, oh, no, it's just about class. Like, stop. Like, mm. there's rich black people. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like one of the things that you do so carefully and sensitively, you give the example of talking about Afro-pessimism and you talk about, and I think it'd be good if you sort of gave a little, like, description into what Afro-pessimism is, but yeah. you talk about how... Obviously, like if you listen to this podcast, you know that me and Tiso aren't Afro pessimists. But what, but what mm. you do, Alana, is you talk about political and material reasons why Afro pessimism came about, like, mm. and and how that is really important. You can't just you can't just denounce what they're saying as simply to do with pesky identity politics. Like, you yeah. need to look at the histories of what has actually happened, and you make mm. the point of like. Some some of the people that adopt that are aspire to this sort of theorization just want a free space on campus to not be called the N word. I mean, I think part of what, what I'm trying to argue in part of this chapter. So the chapter is divided into different sections, but I suppose the bulk of the chapter 
is riffing off a little bit the book by the American writer Assad Haider called Mistaken Identity, uh, which is a critique of identity politics. And he's a really astute writer. So, you know, I wanted to take him seriously. But I was really puzzled by the argument that he mounts in the book is that anti-racism or the left, and th- this is another conflation, right? So I have I kind of have a problem and I, this is going really far back to like my PhD <laughs> where I was, you know, you know what it's like when you do a PhD and you kind of start and you read all this literature and then you end up discounting. But I kind of came to it from a social movements perspective because I was an anti-racist activist and I was really discouraged with a lot of stuff I was seeing in different movements I'd been involved in. And I wanted to take a step back and kind of have a chance to study it. So I was coming from a social movements perspective, kind of because I didn't really know how else to step into that literature. And um, and because there's not a lot of writing on anti-racism at all, right, at least in Europe. And so I was reading these um, articles by people who wrote stuff about social movements. Um, and they were always talking about the feminist movement, the anti-nuclear movement, the green movement, and the anti-racist movement. And I was like, well, these things are really distinct to each other. And certainly I think, and particularly I think now there's a much better understanding of this, but particularly that all of those other movements are not, you know, they, they all have their race issues, right? So particularly, I mean, look at mm. now with the rise of ecofascism, and you don't even need to go as far as ecofascism. Just in the mainstream green movement, there's a lot of race problems, right? There's lots of problems with racism. So I was like, you can't lump anti-racism into all of this. So then when you talk about the the left, you know, and then you assume that anti-racism is part of a leftist uh, aspiration or it's part of a leftist politics, then I have a problem right there, right to begin with. So Assad Haider is interested in the left and why it isn't doing better politically in the United States. And he chooses this really bizarre way of, of going about it. And part of the way in which he does it is to look at how he sees the particular Afro-pessimist discourse, which he sees as circulating online, has infected elements of the movement, uh, he would call it the identity politics movement, to nefarious effects. And I'm thinking this is really bizarre because whatever it is, Afro, I mean, think discussions about Afro-pessimism and other niche areas of black studies and race theory interest people like us, right? But they, I don't think that they interest the majority of people. And that's not to say that people can't understand this, but it's definitely not something that's widely discussed. So I'm like, why is he doing this? This is really puzzling to me. And he kind of he kind of goes into this discussion of how certain figures within Black Lives Matter, and then it's also debatable to what extent these people really identify with Black Lives Matter there. And I agree with him. There's a, there's a critique to be had of certain, let's say, entrepreneurs of Black Lives Matter who kind of seized the moment in Ferguson and they went down to Ferguson and they did this very public show of being in solidarity with other Black people. But then as people in Ferguson, and there's a, there's a brilliant documentary that I watched when I was in Michigan at the end of last year, but it's about the Ferguson movement. I've cited it in the book. It's a brilliant documentary in which they criticize, you know, so what happened once these people went back home to New York or L.A. or wherever else they'd come from? You know, we were left there in the shit. And it really, I mean, the documentary really showed the extent to which it was absolutely awful in Ferguson for black people and continues to be, right? So I agree with him that there's a problem with those kind of entrepreneurs of the Black Lives Matter movement or adjacent to the movement. But I struggle to see why a particular branch of black theory is responsible for that. Like, I really just don't get the connection between these things. And I think it's a kind of a, I don't want to say lazy, but in a sense, it kind of belies it belies the fact that many people who write about these issues, particularly in left publications like Jacobin and all of these other publications, 
they're not really involved in anti-racist politics and they don't really know what it's about and they take isolated incidents. So we've all been online and seen people talking rubbish, right? And you kind of go, this is really excessive. Like just last week, there was somebody who went online and said something about how Anne Frank was Becky or something. You must have seen this. He was a black American activist who apparently has quite a large following. Goes, Why should I care about Anne Frank? Everybody apparently is talking about Anne Frank now because of the coronavirus and social isolation, which is just crazy, okay. right? Oh, so, yeah. you know, if Anne Frank could stay in her attic for three years, then we can do it. You know, all this nonsense. And many Jewish activists, self-included, have kind of gone, no, just don't go there, right? So people are talking about Anne Frank. So this black American activist went online and said, oh, Anne Frank is a Becky. Why should I care about her? And obviously everybody went, justifiably, this is nonsense shut up, right? But the point is, why are we making such a big deal about people like this? There are always going to be people who, for whatever reason, say these types of things. But then to say the entire left, whatever that is, is going to hell at a handcart because some people have these extreme views is really problematic. And that's kind of what happens. So we boil down the complexities, the intricacies, and the widely diverse movements, discourses, and practices that come under the umbrella of anti-racism to little fights that are had, and particularly in the age of social media, because of course I've been doing this research since way before social media, right? <laughs> particularly in the age of social media, I don't want to sound like ancient, but I kind of am. Mm -hmm. But all of this stuff becomes exaggerated and blown out of proportion. And most of the people are just not involved in these little online debates and discussions. That's why I mentioned what Gavin had said to me off the cuff one day on the phone or something. And he said, can you imagine... You know, he's very involved in local politics in Ireland with supporting asylum seekers. Can you imagine them having a discussion about, you know, identity politics? Like they've got so, so many more pressing things to be getting along with, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is in this current age is that we blow things out of proportion and then we do a disservice to anti-racism because all of this gets played out publicly. And then other people like the guy who I read about at the beginning of the chapter is this white Australian comedian does this sketch basically laughing at anti-racists right and 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 everybody laughs along and it's so funny and that's discrediting to a movement that needs the support indeed of the white left we don't need to be laughed at by them yeah do you think when they're talking about identity politics is this a way of the west reconciling how problematic it's been how anti-racist and all these other groups are coming and kind of citing theoretical problems that are wrong with the model and the structure and it's a way of what, deflecting or even talking about it themselves or that idea of a mission of what's 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 been going on and so it becomes it becomes polarized between a very kind of binary kind of right and left argument mm -hmm. and they're not really discussing what's going on they're discussing what's happening between themselves really rather than what's actually going on i mean i think you're right to a certain extent but i think there's a lots of people of color who are involved in really high level and super interesting discussions about the limitations of identity politics, which is why I raised <laughs> some of the interesting discussions around political blackness. I see the complexities of, and I don't think that there's a right or a wrong. I think, you know, many times when we recall history, like in the book, I, I mentioned the podcast that Renée Edelodge, uh, the interview on her podcast that she had with Diane Abbott and other people, which they talk about their time when political blackness came about and what it meant. But we also have to recognize that things have changed and also that things weren't all rosy at the time. It's very easy with the mm -hmm. benefit of history to think, oh, that was great or we were great and what the hell is going on today? And there's, there's a generational problem. And part of what I get exasperated by is people my age and older who kind of poo-poo what younger people are discussing without realizing 
And I'm not accusing Diane Abbott of this because obviously she's an extremely astute woman and a brilliant politician, etc. But I think there's been such an assault on people. From, I mean, you guys are in the UK, but I think it's very similar in many other countries. But since Thatcherism to the present day, there are so many things that I, when I was a student or a young person, it's not that I was naive about it, but I don't think I would have foreseen the extent of the kind of racism that we're dealing with today and the mounting of fascism and the open white supremacism and the return of eugenics thinking in the mainstream. Like, I don't think I could have foreseen, and this is somebody who studied race for 25 years, that today we would be openly talking in the press about, you know, allowing people to die from COVID-19 because, you know, that is openly eugenicist thinking and that it's being put out there as just a legitimate idea. And part of what I try to argue is that because we don't have a good understanding of race and, and its history, then these things are just allowed to happen. So we need to go back in order to understand where we are today. So so to come back to the to the identity politics thing, the, the, the critique of younger people who, who mount criticisms of black, political blackness and the black power movement or whatever it might be, needs to be set in context on the assault on generations, let's say over the last 10 to 15 years. I totally agree with you, Alana, and it's so refreshing, like reading and hearing your analysis of let's 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 talk about just for a second political blackness because we've had so many people message us asking us to talk about this this subject because it is it is a hot one among my generation in particular yeah. and the ones below mine. But one of the problems is that when people try to question political blackness there is an assumption that they don't understand the history and the material gains mm. so that is what I feel like is a really fundamental problem that people sort of assume that people don't mm. understand the importance of it at the time it kind of operates as like this in some settings in anti-racist settings where you have a variety of different people from different backgrounds people of color in a room you kind of witness a type of and I've definitely been complicit in this at times you witness a kind of fragility when black people in particular and I've seen it with black women more so than any other group want to create space to talk about the specificity of blackness mm. and how that experienced and has was experienced in the 70s and 80s it's seen as a position that wants to denounce that history and those strides that were made in political blackness. And it's not mm. can drawing on those experiences not actually be an important lesson to how we move forward as anti-racist. Yes. But, yes. And I think I think you make a really, really important point throughout the book that racialized specificity is how we can overcome some of these really mm. pressing issues we can't looking at processes of racialization require that specificity and i think sometimes when people want to critique political blackness are denounced or basically silenced i've seen on many occasions yes. there's a lack of attention given to the everyday as well and mm. I know the everyday can't always talk to us about structures. There are very pernicious anti-black racism that people outside yeah. of the academy experience a lot from different groups. And I think in acknowledging that, just like mm. white people acknowledge their own complicity in racism, I feel like that can mm. lead us to better futures, basically. And nowhere near am I at the forefront of being able to theorise this stuff. I'm definitely a student of how to reconcile with and move beyond these conversations but thinking about things like who owns black hair shops and what mm. is that what what has that relationship been like in London for example for black women yeah. and 
I, I I don't know. I I I think it's been really good over the past few years seeing how many scholars of colour, black scholars, are trying to do more ethnicized and racialized specific research. And like, yeah. there's really exciting history books coming out. One by Jade Bentil about black women post World War Two. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and their movements. I think this is super important. I mean, the kind of work that I do, as you know, tries to look at race as a technology of power, as a set of yeah. processes and ideas, etc. So I don't do that fine-grained ethnographic analysis, which I think is really important. But from an anti-racist perspective, because this is always what's motivating my work, as I said, somebody who was very involved in anti-racism then did most of my career, the first part of my career was actually, you know, doing research with anti-racism movements, etc. I find it hard, and I'm, I'm interrogating to myself, what is the big problem with acknowledging that racism is specific and works differently for different racialized people and groups? I want to know more. I want to try to think more about what the investment in this idea that racism is something that in, that affects people in similar ways is about. I think it's useful to look at how, and also I think this is contingent, right? So I think at the moment, and I say this in the book, we can't theorize anti-Semitism without theorizing Islamophobia, but the reverse isn't true, right? Yes. And that's because Islamophobia, and this is something that I get from Huria Boutelja, who's a decolonial activist and thinker from France, uh, Algerian woman. She talks about the extent to which Islamophobia in France and elsewhere is institutionalized. So many Muslim people are also poorer. They, they lack employment opportunities. They lack educational opportunities. They're locked out. They're, they're locked out of work, et cetera, healthcare, and they're also incarcerated to a much greater extent. And that just simply is not the case for Jews. It's not the case today for Jews anywhere outside of Israel, because obviously, you know, occupied Palestine, there are poor Jews who are incarcerated and whatever, like any other country. So, but, but in the West, in Britain, in France, in America, et cetera, generally there are poor Jewish people, but generally speaking, we can't talk about institutional racism of that nature against Jewish people. However, the way in which anti-Semitism is theorized today, particularly after the war on terror, but also since Zionism, since the birth of the state of Israel, is in relation to the racialization of Arabs and particularly in the post 9-11 moment of Muslims, right? So in other words, we need to understand racism both specifically in relation to each group Right. So how does anti-Semitism, a particular form of discourse emerge, right, historically over time, really long history, centuries old. I'm not a historian of anti-racism, of anti-Semitism, but there's a lot of work that we can call upon. But also in the present moment, how is, for example, the furore around anti-Semitism in the British Labour Party that was dogging Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, right? How is that contingent upon the ways in which Jews and Muslims are differently racialized, right? So in each instance, we can look at connections between different forms of racisms, right, without collapsing them into each other. So anti-blackness, to return in a really long-winded way to your original point, right, is very specific. And I I think I agree with many of the Black Studies scholars, particularly the Afro-pessimists, who will say that anti-blackness is at the core of race because it's something that's universally shared globally. Globally, there is anti-blackness. It's just something that exists. Now, do I agree with the theory of global anti-blackness, right? There are people who, who are 
critical of that. I'm I'm still learning about what what that would mean. I don't necessarily think that we need to. In fact, I'm going to say categorically that I don't believe in it because I think that also anti-blackness has its specificity in different areas of the world. So the way in which anti-blackness is going to work in Brazil, which I don't know very much about, but obviously that's going to be very different to the way it's going to work in South Africa, for example, right? So we need to look at it as unique in each context, but we also need to look at the universality of anti-blackness as at the core of racial logics. I've got a question then. Um, following that kind of line of argument, could you, could you speak about the specificity of what people would call white racism, then racism against white people? There's a narrative that exists, people being racist towards white people. Hmm. And there's a narrative that because they can't speak about it or can't vocalise it, and that they're, they're subject to the same lack of power, because hmm. they were speaking of themselves being powerless, right? Hmm. Hmm. So can, I don't know. Can we speak to that a bit? Because I, I I know yeah. that's a narrative that, that kind of gets flings around, flung around a lot. I find it really fascinating, right? The same people who will speak <laughs> about anti-white racism will say racism <laughs> doesn't exist. Boom! It's really convenient, right? So, <laughs> but very seriously speaking, I think we are coming to you know, and people have said this openly. Many people have written this openly that the new racism or the real racism is anti-white racism. That's why it's other types of racism don't exist. This is completely the result of the individualization and personalization of racism as a series of attitudes. Because of course, you're going to find some random black person who hates some white people or all white people, right? But that is not mm-hmm. what racism is about, right? And mm-hmm. when you do that, when and when you and successfully it's been done, think about how racism is educated about in school. It's it's, it's always connected to being mean to somebody else, right? So children, mm-hmm. I, I get it on a one I mean, I kind of don't get it. I'm actually pretty angry about it. I really find it objectionable that black child or brown child is told oh, don't make too much about this person being nasty about you, but they don't mean it and, you know, et cetera, right? Because actually what you're doing there is completely excluding the white supremacist institution in which certain types of language, like how does a child even learn to talk about, you know, a white child talk about a black child in a particular way? That's what we need to interrogate. And I think we can teach children about structural racism. You know, (laughs) black children have to know what it is from a young age. So white children should also know what it is from a young age. But because we've been so successful at teaching people that racism is about being, to come back to it, intentionally mean or vicious to other people, not that that doesn't exist. Like We know that it does. But that completely excludes the question of why that's the case. So therefore, people who are totally racially illiterate, and often it's highly educated people who could choose not to be racially illiterate by reading some books about the history of race, will say, oh, the real racism is anti-white racism because so-and-so spat at me or said something nasty to me or something like that, yeah? But that doesn't interrogate, you know, that person hasn't lost his job, he hasn't been uh, denied health care because of his, you know, you know where he's racialized he hasn't he doesn't have a lower life expectancy and all of these other things that we are we know are connected to being uh racially categorized key to that thing is understanding the concept of power how power mm, links mm, into exactly. the deployment of racism i'm just thinking from my own kind of research how successfully the far right have mobilized this idea that they're, they're powerless because they can't mm. they don't have a voice so this idea kind of ties into what you're speaking about the idea of free speech so they want to be free because they feel like mm. their power has been taken away by either the mainstream media or yeah. the Jews, whatever group, women, whatever group it is, has taken away their power. So the analysis of power 
has come into far right discourse and it's been mainstream. So it's yeah. that these people don't have a voice and a voice is power in a democracy, in inverted commas, right? Yeah. I mean, look, this is again a problem that I have. I, I get it. I think I heard on your podcast the other day, somebody was talking about you were, I think Chantelle, you were talking about how you have to talk to your average white bloke about this stuff and we have to take that responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, I was on my walk and I was thinking about this and I was thinking, yeah, you know, she's right in many ways. But on the other hand, I was thinking, you know, people know what they're doing. Yeah. People know what, I mean, you know, everybody knows how things operate. We don't, nobody is outside of society if you were open to thinking about why it is that somebody has a job and somebody else doesn't or you know somebody again life expectancy i mean aboriginal people their life expectancy is 17 years lower than the average population in australia people know this stuff they absolutely know this stuff so then why is it always about well these people are downtrodden and they've been what's the word left behind etc etc there's been too much focus on racism and not enough on class and therefore these people feel hard done by etc um things could be otherwise if we were more racially literate and we didn't treat racism in discussions as a question of trauma and you know me abusing you or calling you a racist or calling you a name and so on and so forth if we if it was a real topic like a topic for study something that everybody has to get under their belt simply in order to be able to live in society then we wouldn't have we wouldn't be dogged by these questions of anti-white racism and you know, so I think we need to we need to be a little less, you know, a little bit less pussyfooting around these people. Yeah. They know what they're doing. But I, I agree with you. I think for me, like I, I, we kind of something you just echoed back in the earlier the podcast when you said about America's uh, achievements wouldn't be without the theft of land and stolen mm. labor. Yeah. As a kid, when I've kind of encountered the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. And I thought, well, is it wasn't slavery just as important to this process yeah. of the West? So if it was included in that big canon, you're mm. automatically your attitude towards this kind of shifts. Yeah. Rather than seeing it as something abhorrent and it's a moral it's thing and someone being mean to someone, this yeah. is part of how you became rich, right? Yeah. Just yeah. as much as the revolution. So understanding it in that kind of conceptual, not in that abstract way, but also linking it to the very material conditions that you have to today, it, it changes that dialogue. Well, and the problem is that people know that their wealth today, I mean, if you were to do this, right, then people would know that their wealth today is predicated on this past and that it would be, and it is, completely illegitimate. Like I'm literally only in the position that I am in today, not through pulling myself up by my bootstraps as the American myth goes, right, but literally because I was afforded opportunities on the basis of being white that other people were denied on the simple basis of having a different color of skin and coming from a different area of the world, right? And that is completely and utterly illegitimate when you boil it down. So therefore, there has to have been this enormous investment in turning racism into the few bad apples, right? And we've expunged them today. They're out the window. We're all on the right path now. And any moaning and whining from black people is their own fault. And this is what allows perpetuation of the same kind of racism that actually 
undergirded the, the historical era that we think is in the past and all behind yeah. us because we yeah. simply are unable and it's not even unable it's not there's been a political project to deny this you know right from the word go there has to be a silence about it in order to allow the conditions to basically remain the same under a different guise um <clears throat> one of the things that we were talking about in our pre-chat is how some white people and white scholars have tried to take responsibility of some of the mm-hmm. things that we've been talking about, the technologies of race, and talking about getting people to talk and white people to talk more explicitly about what whiteness is and what white mm-hmm. supremacy is. And I was wondering if we could maybe talk about the pro- basically the pros and cons of that, like who it serves, mm-hmm. what it actually does, and... You, you sort of have coined a really good friend. Like, is it white self-help literature? Yeah. You said. Yeah. <laughs> can you, can yeah. you talk to this a little bit, Alana? Yeah. I mean, I think another person who's done really important work on critiquing this stuff is Sarah Ahmed again in her, you know, critical work on whiteness studies, particularly from an Australian perspective. I think, you know, that, that work needs to be constantly revisited and other people have. But it, it's interesting how recently I was described as a whiteness studies scholar and I was really horrified because I really have always had really had a problem with what well, I think very often people see a white person or somebody who's white appearing working on race and they think they must be doing whiteness studies which is a testament in itself to the problem that I have with whiteness studies because I think critical whiteness studies which really originates with Du Bois when you think about mm-hmm. it and has been done brilliantly by numerous black academics. I'm thinking of Cheryl Harris's work on whiteness as property, which is so seminal, um, and other people. And also, you know, critical white, you know, Marxist scholars like David Rodiger, um, et cetera, have done really important work and they set the field. But then there was a kind of a move, if you think about the 1990s, when ethnic studies starts to take off. There was a kind of a, what I like to call a Me Too ethnic studies. I don't mean Me Too in the sense of the, you know, anti-sexual uh, yeah. uh, discrimination, but but in terms of like, please include me also, right? So white people get to interrogate themselves. And very often it ends up in this kind of navel gazing, self-flagellation, or it kind of veers between the two. Like our histories are really important as well. And Irish people in the US or Irish people in Australia, really, we need to look at them and German people who migrated to God knows where and we need to look at those people as well and etc. That's one part of it. And the other part of it is this self-flagellation, this feeling of guilt and Sarah Ahmed talks about the difference between guilt and shame and all of these things which are really important. Um, and it's a, it's a problem because what it leads to is the constant recentering of whiteness when we try to do the interrogation and interrogation of race. So on the one hand, we need to be very open, as I said before, about how the ultimate aim of racial rule is the maintenance of white supremacy. But we can't let that slip into, but actually all we should look at is whiteness. And even among people of color who uh, I'm talking activists and students, like, you know, so many students now want to work on whiteness before everybody wanted to work on identity. Now everybody wants to work on whiteness. And I'm wondering what that's doing in terms of a better understanding of race, because almost for me, you can say the aim of race is the maintenance of white supremacy. And then you can move on. Right. You don't need to do this constant interrogation. So when somebody like I think we were discussing white fragility, which has been so popular in recent years, when that comes onto the agenda, everybody feels super excited because it's like finally white people are taking responsibility for their own whiteness and their own racism. But actually, as somebody like Alison Whitaker, who's a brilliant Aboriginal writer here, poet and, and writer and academic here in Australia, has written in a recent article, I think it's called So White, So What? She's like, why does there have to be this performance 
of acknowledging my white privilege that then adds an extra burden onto indigenous people and black people and other people who have to listen to your discussion of how you've been dealing so well with your whiteness or not dealing well or just dealing with or just thinking about it as if you deserve a cookie or a medal for having done that work. I thought that was really astute as a critique and something that needs to be thought of because, again, it's a kind of a reoccupation of the, of the space, which is already limited in academia. We have so few spaces to discuss race in a serious way, in a, re, in a way that challenges scholarship and the very foundations of the academy in ways that we must, that I think are really, really important to do. And then when it gets occupied by a discussion, a navel-gazing discussion of white people and their traumas and their problems with themselves, it's really problematic for everybody else. Do you think it's it's part of that European project of that kind of linearity of exercising the irrationality from European thought? So mm. you you move from the religion, then you have the scientific revolution because you mm. exercise the irrational, and you keep on that process of exercising the past and moving and making a distinction of yeah. I'm expunging this from my soul, all mm. the irrationality from my soul. So the kind of like in kind of very bearing terms, the I engage irrationality. You're moving away from the irrational you're trying to get rid of this emotionness yeah. this this backwardness that you attach to the past so that kind of self-help kind of for me anyway yeah. kind of ties into that process that bigger it, process it, it, look it holds out a promise to individual white people who are feeling bad about their whiteness that there's some kind mm. of salvation for whiteness right mm. and there's a brilliant british scholar daniel c Blyde, who i cite in the book who says there's no form of anti-racism can can begin with white identity that's, that's a dead project, you know, and that's why, you know, the, the whiteness studies scholars in the US, uh, Noel Ignatiev, for example, the ultimate aim is the destruction of whiteness. We need to destroy whiteness. There's nothing salvageable from the project of whiteness. And we need to understand that whiteness is a political project. It's not white people. I mean, people happen to be white, right? They have white skin, right? And they can deal with the, how that makes them feel on their own time, right? But there's nothing sal salvageable in whiteness as a political project. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the better it is. And that's why I have a problem with this self-help approach. And I think Robin DiAngelo is cognizant of this stuff. I don't think, I think she would agree even. But there's still, it's not so much about what she writes, it's the way it's interpreted. We need to, to, to be mindful of, we need to think about, it kind of throws throws white people, progressive, liberal, anti-racist white people, a life jacket, when actually <laughs> what, what needs to happen is for them to help us to sink that ship of whiteness. Yeah. Alana, do you realise how amazing you are? So, Lana, what, what kind of, does, it, does it seem to you, when you say this stuff, does it seem like it's common sense to you? Like, how you see the world, it, does it seem like that quite a rational thing? Because some people, yeah. when I, it's difficult for them to kind of grasp these kind of things in such a way that what you just said to us makes sense. Yeah. But to some people, it, that's difficult to understand. And I guess it kind of ties back into what you said earlier, like individual kind of graspings on how do people see these things? Because some of my mates would say to me, if I spoke to them in simple terms, how I see it, how you said it to me, quite plain speaking, quite direct. One of my friends, he's like, my, my daughter's mixed race. My partner's black. And I'm like, I understand what you're saying, mm. but all these things still apply. And they still, they cannot grasp that situation. 
there has to be acknowledgement that they do understand what is happening. Mm, what, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the refusal to understand what is happening that we need to interrogate because it, exactly. it is an investment in power and capital. Yeah. So it, it, it makes complete sense that they he wouldn't, or this group that you're yeah. talking about, wouldn't want to rationalise and take in what Alana's saying because their whole... Mm-hmm life is in string and a problem like you're going to go to pieces if you're somebody like that you're going to go to pieces you're going to lose your mind if you actually come to terms with with the ramifications of what they're saying like i can say these racist things but it's okay because my wife is black right if you actually you know when you think that through it's so horrific it's so Mm -hmm. horrific because it's about your family like the people who literally came from you you know, the problem is it's not to excuse those people because I don't think that there is an excuse because as we've been saying, people know what they're doing. But also we don't have the tools. We don't have the tools to actually make people understand. And there's so much investment in making people feel that that this is a question of morality alone. I mean, of course, morality is involved, but it's that it's only a question of morality. And if you think of yourself as a good person, you mm-hmm. cannot countenance, not you, obviously, but people, white people <laughs> in this scenario. Yeah, yeah cannot countenance that because they they're good people they've married a black woman right for goodness sake they have a black child you know i'm a good person etc and so they cannot deal like they literally cannot deal on that we're gonna have to end there honestly i could alana i could literally talk to you all day oh i loved it so much i'm such a big fan of, of both of you i really am do you know what right chantel chantel you know i'll, I'll so say good. something you know you think when I read your book and hear you speak, I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> it's it's yeah. heavy. It's a lot, man. It's really good. It's really good. I've learned, and you've seen that the podcast was was quoted in several places in the book. Oh mm. no, honestly, mm. we're like that. It's that sort of yeah citation. It means so much to us, and we're so grateful and so honoured. Can't believe we're in a Lana Lentin's book. Come on. <laughs> um, I've, I've suggested people read it already. I've come down. I said, you yeah. need to read this book, and you know that, but. They said, tease it really academic. I said, no, it's accessible, man. You can understand oh, it. You can understand it. I'm happy. It's I'm really, happy. really clear. And mm-hmm. listeners, you have to have to get this book. Like, the link is in, going to be in the episode. Is it in the notes. description? Yeah, yeah. We're going to be promoting it. We're also going to competition a, a copy away. This book oh, is an really? essential read for the next generation of anti-racist. It's an essential read for everyone. But I also think yeah. particularly people that are trying to do the large and complicated project of anti-racism need this as well so well, thank you thank you so much you know i go one step further man i'd say like for like if we want to make a new canon a new canon to understand the, what the complexity of the 21st century i think it should be in there man you know oh. seriously. thank you so much alana and listeners we will see you again next week take care see you Thanks later you have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.